This is KCRW. I'm Michelle Alloy, in for Madeline Brand this week, and it's time for film reviews with expert advice on what to see and what to skip. Joining us today are Sean Edwards, a film critic at Fox 4 News in Kansas City and co-founder of the African American Film Critics Association. Hi, Sean. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. And Amy Nicholson, host of the podcast Unspooled and film reviewer for The New York Times. Hi, Amy. Hello. Lovely to be here. All right, let's start with Five Nights at Freddy's. This is based on the indie horror video game of the same name. In the 80s, kids went missing. The police searched Freddy's top to bottom. Hello? They never found them. That's why the place shut down. There are ghost children possessing giant robots. Thanks for the heads up. Technically, they're animatronics. All right. It is Halloween weekend indeed. Amy, the game franchise first came out in 2014 and quickly built a pretty big cult following. Uh, The game centers around this night security guard officer at a kind of Chuck E. Cheese-like pizza chain situation. Uh, How close uh, is the plot in this film? Uh, How how close does it hew to the, the source material in the video game? I mean, I assume fairly close. This is one of those films where... It feels a lot smarter than you expect it to to feel. And then it absolutely falls apart when you bother trying to analyze what's happening on the screen at all. I mean, like, as you heard, yes, this is about a Chuck E. Cheese analog where the animatronics are now filled with the spirits of tragic ghost children. And I have to kind of say right up at the top, that's weirdly not that different from the true corporate origin story of the character Chuck E. Cheese, which I just have to say this really quick. It's my fulfilled lifelong dream of telling this to people. (laughs) That the floor Chucky is yours, cheese. Amy. Oh, thank you. His real full name is Charles Entertainment Cheese. And also, he is an orphan who grew up in an orphanage called St. Marineras. And Chuck E. Cheese does not know his parents and he does not know his real birthday. And that is why, as an adult mouse, he lives at a pizza place where he can celebrate birthdays every day. That's horrifying. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so this movie itself, the way that it's kind of cast is super confusing Josh Hutcherson is the security guard he's in charge of a little girl at home you think this is his daughter she turns out to be his sister the ages are so weird in this movie um but this movie I will say it is a cut above a slasher I was expecting a slasher this is more complex I would say like narratively too complex the more complex you think the story is kind of the dumber it 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 falls it becomes like Everything in this movie does not hold up as soon as the movie is over, but it's fine from scene to scene as you're going along. Sean, the animatronic creatures here, they were created by uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Uh, Can you talk about the aesthetics of the film and and broadly what you thought? Were they creepy? Well, first off, I agree with Amy on a lot of what she said. And yes, the, the animatronics are creepy, but they're not creepy because of the film. They're just creepy in real life. So there's not a lot of credit for the filmmakers in making the animatronics creepy, which I was sort of disappointed. I mean, if you're going to put animatronics and sort of make them the villain of a horror movie, go over the top with it. You know, make them more creepy than what you can actually get at a real life Chuck E. Cheese. And they didn't really accomplish that. And I did think that the narrative was a bit all over the place. I mean, there were some there were some good points to the storytelling. And as Amy mentioned, there were some really confusing points to the storytelling. I, I didn't really understand how it all fit together. My biggest problem was this film sort of plays against brand. Like Blumhouse is known for like movies like Paranormal Activity, The Purge, Insidious, and Get Out. And this didn't really play like that. It's less of a horror film and more of a 
more of a more of a thriller because I mean the jump scares are lame. The creepiness factor really didn't work. And it's actually fitting that Matthew Lillard stars in this movie because it actually plays like an episode of Scooby-Doo. All right. So if you're looking for some Halloween frights, this one, maybe not. Not it. Five Nights at Freddy's is in theaters and wide release. Okay. up next, we have a satire about big pharma. This is Pain Hustlers, and it stars Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. Get a doctor to prescribe your drug. You know, we bill on a full dose script. What? 40 grand. A year? A month. It's a long odds lottery ticket buried under a thousand rejections. And you got to have the grit to reach down and scratch it. There's nothing so inspiring as sheer desperation. All right, Sean Blunt plays a single mom who works at a strip club. That's where she meets a pharmaceutical rep, played by Chris Evans, who lures her into working with him uh, with the promise of a bigger paycheck and a better life. What did you think of this? Well, if movies were sold at McDonald's, this is the type of film people would buy on the regular because it's very generic, it's easy to digest, and it really doesn't take a lot to understand what's going on. But that's not this film's biggest problem. This film's biggest problem is is really, really late to the party. Like, there have been so many movies and TV series and documentaries that have explored and examined the opioid crisis in America to where this is sort of like really, really traveling down a road that many times has been traveled before like this this has been this has been covered to death and they do nothing new <laughs> with this material the problem is it's directed by david yates who is you know mostly known for brilliantly directing the latter half of the harry potter film saga but there's no magic here at all and it also seems that someone slipped him the aaron brockovich playbook because is is you know Emily Blunt is as much as she tries to elevate this material, she just can't because she doesn't have anything to work with. I mean, every character in this movie is stereotypical, every plot device is stereotypical. I mean, and it's all by the numbers, but nothing adds up because this sort of material has been covered by way better series like dope sick and painkillers and way better movies like recovery boys and way better documentaries that had have, have really, really tackled this really devastating ordeal and done it much better. But with all that said, for some reason, it's a very entertaining movie. It just doesn't shed any new light on the opiate crisis and it's just not very good. But for some reason, it's watchable. Yeah, Amy, what did you think? Because watching this, I got the trailer. I got very much like Wolf of Wall Street vibes, kind of tongue in cheek uh, take mm -hmm. on this extremely real crisis that is unfolding uh, still in a lot of ways. And do, do you agree with Sean that that other series kind of tackle this better? I haven't seen most of the ones he's mentioning, and I probably should because I enjoyed this watch a lot. I mean, it is based on the true story of a company called like Incest Therapeutics who's founder, who's kind of the Andy Garcia analog in here. He went to jail as well as several other employees for the crimes we see in this movie and then other crimes that happened that this movie didn't even cover because there's just so much happening in here. Yeah, in this like post-Wolf of Wall Street era, we have had these movies on brands, you know, Blackberry and Beanie Babies just this year. And I always like these movies because they tend to be about how low people will sink to make a buck, you know, like how capitalism cheapens everybody. All of these like employees are like saying, 
we're doing what is right and mostly legal. You know, it's it's legal up until you get caught. And, you know, the best parts of these movies are always those scenes of like greed and excess, which I think Wolf of Wall Street really just set the standard here in this film kind of chases after it. But this particular story is so much harder to tonally pull off because people died. People are still dying. And I think the director, David Yates, has a real conscience about that. And he's trying his best, especially in the second part of the film, to kind of balance the fun with the horror. But that is a a really hard sell. So, yes, I find this film very, very, very entertaining. But you can see the pain inside of it kind of struggling to even figure out how to tell this story in a way that people will watch and also be horrified. All right. Pain Hustlers is in select theaters and streaming on Netflix beginning tomorrow. Next, we have The Holdovers from Academy Award-winning director Alexander Payne, teaming up again with his sideways star Paul Giamatti here. Giamatti is still cranky, uh, but he's playing a teacher at a New England boarding school. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? That's another detention! Do you think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's dead. Amy, this film is set in the early 70s in the Vietnam era. These holdover students have to stay behind at school during the holiday break. And of course, someone needs to watch them. So tell us about that lucky teacher uh, Giamatti plays. Yeah, Giamatti is playing the history teacher who's definitely the least popular teacher at the entire school with the students and the faculty. He's one of those guys who cannot help relating everything to Icarus and people just blink at him. And he's like, okay, and he soldiers on. And, you know, he gets into this like central relationship with one of the kids who's stuck there for the holidays. This kid played by Dominic Sessa, who's like also super smart and also kind of a social idiot the way they both really are. And I appreciate that, like, Alex Payne doesn't cheat how the connection between these two men deepen. Like, it's really natural, which means they're never going to fully spill their guts to each other. They're never going to go for that big moment of trying to make the audience cry, which I really respect. You know, this film starts off kind of brash and goofy. And then it settles down into the things it wants to talk about, privilege and failure and education and complacency and making assumptions about people. And, you know, they're joined by a third person, one of the chefs played by Divine Joy Randolph, who we heard in that clip. Uh, This film is just very classic and steady. It's really, really easy to like. It's got a good dash of bitters to it, but it's hard to fall in love with this film. It's just incredibly solid. All right, Sean, uh, speaking of classic, I understand that Payne wanted this movie to not just feel like the movie was set in the 1970s, but to really feel like you were watching a movie made in the 70s. Does that help or hurt the film? I thought it helped because he executed that very well from the opening credit sequence to the end of the film. Yes, it drips of the 70s. It feels like the 70s. It looked like the 70s and it sounded like the 70s and the performances were true to that era. I mean, to me, it was a fascinating movie about heartbreak, grief, loneliness, isolation, privilege, trauma and mental health. And yeah, Paul Giamatti, he's always terrific. But the standout for me was Divine Joy Randolph because she actually took and elevated a character that could have easily been one note and totally derailed the entire film. And kudos to Dominic Sessa because this is his feature film debut and he holds his own with Giamatti and Randolph very well. And just the the back and forth between those three, that's the selling point of the movie. But no, Alexander Payne does a terrific job in delivering 
a sort of melancholy holiday classic that worked on a lot of levels. All right. The Holdovers is in select L.A. theaters beginning tomorrow and in wide release beginning November 10th. Last up, a science fiction romance called Fingernails, directed by Greek filmmaker Christos Niku. This stars Riz Ahmed and Jesse Buckley as workers at a compatibility testing facility called The Love Institute. A lot of famous people study there. Really? Like who? Ginger Spice. She's my favorite. I know. The truth is, we're all achingly lonely, and we're endlessly searching for ways to fill that void. Can I ask you something? Why do you work at the Institute? Maybe you understand love a little better. All right, Sean, at the center of this is a new technology that's supposed to prove whether a couple is truly in love. Uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, actually, a lot can go wrong, but the thing that went wrong with me with this film, Fingernails, is that, yeah, it, it is about this technology that sort of tests whether or not you're compatible with the person that you love. And the thing that frustrated me the most is I wanted to know more about this technology. I wanted to know how they came up with it, how it actually worked. And they really don't explore that. But what they do very well is they do sort of do this sort of like different take and different examination on relationships. But the, the way it's all pulled together and the way that it works is really on the on the performances delivered by Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed and Jeremy Allen White, best known from The Bear. I, I thought they were it was nuanced. It, it, was, it was realistic. But the problem is it, it may be all a bit too quiet and a bit too slow. And it was just a lot unexplained when you have to talk about their relationships in relation to this institute. And not a lot of that is tied together in the film. So as much as I love the film, I was frustrated with the film. Amy, what did you think? Yeah, this film starts so, 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 so strong. I mean, the Greek filmmakers really kind of own this tone of like lightly sci-fi anthropological drama. Yeah, it has Yorgos Lanthimos vibes to it, for sure. Exactly. You can tell he's like a huge influence here. And the problem is they're also doing sort of that Yorgos Lanthimos style acting where like Riz Ahmed and Jesse Buckley are kind of being very neutral and very formal and kind of repressed. And that carries you through a lot of the story. And then in the third act, it becomes really monotonous, you know, because they're just staying in that tone. And it, the film kind of starts to feel like it's really spinning its wheels. And, and kind of to Sean's point, one thing that this film cannot decide, it just doesn't want to seem to decide, is like, is this love test, which involves ripping off your fingernails, that's the title of the film, um, is ripping off your fingernails a real genuine test that proves that you're in love, or is this bunk and everybody is believing wholeheartedly in a test that maybe is flawed? And the film itself kind of ironically doesn't want to commit one way or another, and that becomes part of the struggle. But the first two thirds of this, so smart, so funny, really, really, really engaging that you want to see it at least for those. All right, Fingernails is in select theaters tomorrow and coming to Apple TV Plus on November 3rd. And that does it for this week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Sean Edwards is a film critic at Fox 4 News in Kansas City and co-founder of the African-American Film Critics Association. And Amy Nicholson is host of the podcast Unspooled and film reviewer for The New York Times. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.